0: Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Uh, This is God's holy, inspired word. Uh, Let's do well to give our full attention to its reading. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, "'What did Moses command you?' They said, "'Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away.' And Jesus said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh.' So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (coughs) Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do approach a passage of Scripture this morning uh, that presents a set of particular challenges uh, to both the preacher and also to the listener. Not, Not only because the subject of divorce is quite heavy and it's difficult to wade through and it makes us think about the ways in which we ourselves have been touched by this particular topic, but also because this passage is used with a host of other, uh, let's say a handful of other passages as proof text in order to establish a theology of divorce and remarriage. It's common in the church, in other words, to want to know where the pastor stands, where the elders stand, where particular congregants stand on the topic of marriage, We've been clear on marriage, but also, most especially, on the topic of divorce and remarriage. We want to know what the Scriptures say, and it can be helpful to understand what the Scriptures say about these particular topics, but that approach, we need to be aware, uh, focuses on the exceptions. It focuses on what the Scriptures say in regards to when is it okay, and we like that. We want to know when is it lawful. To proceed with a divorce? When, it is, when is it okay? Or when is it okay, if ever, to then remarry or to marry again? See, these questions can be good, but we need to recognize that the scriptures present a holistic approach on marriage, which is what Jesus is doing for us this morning. I'm sure you're familiar with the exception passages, well known exception passages. Jesus in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 says, If one divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, he causes her to commit adultery. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, we learn that also abandonment is a legitimate grounds for said divorce. And it's been common then for these exception clauses to be considered as law codes. This is when it's okay to proceed with a divorce. The difficulty, though is that not everyone agrees on what Jesus means when he says sexual immorality. Not everyone agrees on that term when it's translated. How much is too much, In what way is sexual immorality then lawful to proceed with divorce? That's just something. That doesn't mean we don't touch it, but it's just something to keep in mind. There is massive disagreement. There are particular views on the subject. The permanent view. There is the view of adultery only. There is the view of broader sexual immorality. What we need to be aware of is that when we hear those exception clauses, which is what the Pharisees are doing here, is that we are prone in our own sin to take exceptions that are given to us in God's word and to justify then breaking God's commandments and breaking the well-ordered reality in which he has placed us in. We abuse the exceptions. So we want to know what the exceptions are to formulate our theology around divorce and remarriage in order to then set ourselves up over against those who are maybe going through a divorce or have been through a divorce and to say, yes, that was lawful or, or not. It's helpful to deal with the data of Scripture. We want to be sure of that. But we need to recognize that we can use those exceptions to break God's law. We should note from the beginning that Scripture does provide Details in regards to when is it lawful to proceed with a divorce. I already mentioned Matthew 5, 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. But it's not the preacher's duty from this text, I would say. I'm not taking the position of now working out all the particulars. In other words, you're not going to hear this morning a theology of divorce and remarriage. That's in fact not what Jesus is doing here. That's not what Mark is recording Jesus doing here. He is taking a much more narrow approach and he is speaking positively about what God has said about marriage. He's speaking positively about where marriage comes from, what the intent of marriage is, what the purpose of marriage is, and what marriage pictures. So, While it might be be helpful to look at the particulars, this morning we're looking at the narrow teaching of Jesus And he's doing something specific. Jesus here doesn't provide exceptions. He just says the truth of the matter. To divorce leads to adultery. Why is he going that direction? We're going to explore that in just a moment. But first, I do want to recognize that the topic of divorce is hard, it's difficult. Because it's not natural, it's not the way that God has set things up. The world, the church, those within our own congregation, have been touched deeply by this topic. And it leaves the heart in shambles. It tears us to shreds as we've seen that the sin in this world causes a breach in a relationship that God did not design to be broken. So it's heavy and weighty. We also need to recognize that what the scriptures say is the reason why divorce happens is because of sin. It is because the hardness of heart of one party or both parties that drive a wedge between one another. And it's not the way things were supposed to be. It is because of sin that that happens. While at the same time, some qualifications out of the gate. If you are an innocent party one who has been broken by the sin or the hardness of heart that leads to divorce, there's comfort for you here. In the gospel, the Lord Jesus comforts you. If you're an innocent bystander that's been struck by divorce, living in a broken home, let's say, and you've gone through the depths of turmoil and pain that results from divorce, there is healing And there is reconciliation here in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even for you. What about the guilty party? If you are a guilty party who has, because of your own sin, because of your own hardness of heart, driven a wedge between you and the spouse whom God has set you up with, there is sweet and full and complete forgiveness here in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to think about marriage, and we're going to see the intention of God for his people as the bigger picture. We're going to see the gospel through verses 1 through 12 of Mark's Gospel in, in chapter 10. And so the issue at hand, we need to keep this in view, the issue is hard-heartedness. That's the issue. Jesus is pressing into the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, but also those who came before the Pharisees and our own hard-heartedness. And what's he going to do? He's going to deal with it. He is going to do that which the Pharisees couldn't do. He's going to do that which the law of Moses couldn't do. And he's going to do that which we could not do and cannot do apart from him. So we're going to look at the passage then in three points. The facetious test. Pharisees come with this test which is facetious, and then Jesus responds with remarks that are from God's word. It is a focused response, and he responds with this focused response in order to frame the commitment. What is that commitment? It's him for his church, him for you and me, him for his bride. Those are the three points. So first, the facetious test. Jesus has been teaching his followers so far. He's been been teaching his followers, and if you remember in this section, he's teaching them about who the Christ is, what he is going to do, his person and his work, his mission in this world, and he's also teaching them about what true discipleship looks like. True discipleship is dying to yourself, he tells them in a couple of passages ago, dying to yourself, taking up one's cross, and following him through the path of suffering that he is going to walk down. And who is the Christ? He is the Son of Man who must suffer at the hands of men, be handed over, suffer at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, die a violent death, but in three days he tells them he is going to rise and he's going to empower his disciples then to go and spread the gospel. So in this section, he's been focused on teaching his disciples about what true discipleship looks like. He's still entertaining the crowds. But then he goes, look at verse 12 at the end of our passage. He is speaking to his disciples in particular in order to teach them because he's laying the foundation of the New Testament church and he's giving them the content that they're going to now go proclaim to the nations. He's moving from Capernaum and he arrives in Judea. His face, you remember, at this point is set towards Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem in order to suffer and to die. Yet he stops up north. He goes up north and he ministers to the Gentiles. And now he's down in the southern regions in Judea and he's ministering to the Jews. What we see here is the far-reaching significance of Jesus' ministry. As was his custom, he sits down and he teaches them. Like a good shepherd and like the chief prophet that he is, he reveals to them and he reveals to us the secret counsel of God's will And the secret counsel of God's will for our reconciliation, for our redemption, that's what he's revealing to them. And that's what he is revealing to us. So if if you want to know what Jesus is up to, he's demonstrating himself as the chief prophet who speaks from God to reveal to all of the crowds and to us God's secret counsel concerning our deliverance. Where do we get deliverance? It's in him, his person, and his work. That's what he is up to teaching from his from his mouth as a good shepherd it's interrupted ferocious wolves they come and they interrupt him and they think they have him here they think they've got him who's coming it's The teachers of the law. The guardians of the law are back, and they're back, and they're ready to rumble. They're ready to rumble with Jesus. They've set him up. They know that this is how they're for sure going to get him. He's teaching with authority. They're worried about it because the crowds are following him, and they're nervous. They are fearful, so they level this question, and they for sure know that he's not going to be able to answer this the way that at least the crowds want him to answer it. With another test, they're wanting to plot and to scheme and to derail the ministry of Jesus Christ. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they say? We're set up now. This is the question. Is it lawful, Jesus? You see, what they're trying to do, their intent is exposed in the question. They're trying to trap Jesus. How do we know this? Well, because if he answers in the positive... Yes, it's lawful. He loses the support of the conservative, conservative crowd. If he answers in the negative, however, he loses the support. If it's not lawful, he loses the support of the liberal crowd. Because the Mosaic law, it permitted Divorce. We're going to get to that. Not encourage, doesn't allow for, but it regulates. God knows because of their sin, it's going to happen. And when it happens, here's what you do. And it was according to any indecency that the man found in his wife that he would then be able to send her away. But not everyone agreed. Like no one agrees, not everyone agrees on what sexual immorality means. So too, in the Mosaic Law, not everyone agreed on what does indecency mean. There were two camps, two schools. You see, the conservative school, said it had to be a specific and heightened sort of immor- immorality. Some type of unchastity is what would allow a man to give a certificate of a divorce to his wife and send her away. Conservative crowd. But there was also a liberal crowd, a looser crowd that said, no, that, that indecency can be just about anything. In fact, if she burns your meal or folds your shirt incorrectly, then you can send her away with a certificate of divorce. It can be just about anything. Jesus, take a stand. Where is it that you fit? Are you with the conservatives or are you with the liberals? The looser view, you can send her away for just about anything, seems to be the prominent view. Suspecting that Jesus has a different view than them, they ask him, why don't you tell us where you stand? Because if they can get him to compromise on the clear teaching of the law, they can publicly demolish him. That's their intent. We should not be confused. They want to publicly derail his ministry. So they ask him the hard question. What's more, though, where is he at now? He's back down in the region of Herod Antipas. Who was Herod Antipas? He's the Herod who puts John the Baptist to death. Why did he put John the Baptist to death? Well, it's because he was in an adulterous marriage with Herodias who Herodias wants the head of John the Baptist because John the Baptist is proclaiming God's clear word from creation that even the unbeliever is to not depart from their marital union and walk in adultery. So John the Baptist proclaims it and it costs him his head. So do you see the schemes of the Pharisees? Now if we can get him to say that divorce isn't lawful, Herod might hear of it. And Herod might take the head of Jesus just like he took the head of John the Baptist and now it's over. It's done with. We want Herod to be able to hear about what Jesus is saying. The irony, though, Jesus is going to his death. But it's on his account. It's on his accord. And it's not according to the Pharisees trapping him. He willfully lays down his life. They don't quite get that. Jesus takes a hard stance here. Herod might get involved. So let's think about his focused response then. Second, his focused response. Our chief prophet, the one whose food it is to do the will of God, responds with the wisdom of God. Here we see a remarkable, a remarkable response of the Lord Jesus who speaks with wisdom from God himself. It's like Job 5, as Jesus will frustrate the desires of the crafty so that their hands will achieve no success. Their hands are at work. They're wanting to put him to death through maybe the hands of Herod, but Jesus is going to frustrate their craftiness. He is going to catch the wise in their craftiness and their schemes will be brought to an end. Notice how he frustrates the facetious test. He does it with a focused response and he appeals to the infallible word of God, calls them back to the scriptures. What did Moses command you? He asks. Sidesteps the question. In wisdom, what does the word of God say? Notice, though, this is key. Jesus asks, what did Moses command you? And where do they go? They go to the exception clause. They go to what's permitted. No, no, Jesus is asking, "What, what did Moses command you? And they go to the exclusion. This is what God allows. You see, they're making God's word a justification to walk in this form of idolatry or adultery or divorce, and they're breaking God's will for the marital union. With Deuteronomy 24 as their starting point, they tell Jesus what Moses permitted. And this is what Moses permitted. He permitted that a man could send his wife away with a certificate of divorce if he found any indecency in her. However, what we learn about this permission that God grants is that it is God's provision, His accommodation for the sin of His people. Again, He knew they were going to do it. Their hearts are hardened, they are sinful. When it happens, here are the provisions. This is what you need to do. Why? Because He's going to protect, preserve life, especially for the woman who is involved and sent away, particularly frivolous, frivolously. So God shows his provision and we learn a few things. That divorce wasn't to be done hastily. No such thing as no fault divorce. But instead the man was to take time and he was going to write down on the certificate of divorce what is the reasoning for him sending his wife away. Had to take his time with it, not to be done hastily. It wasn't the permission wasn't to then promote divorce as being an easy way out. It had to be Thoughtful. We also learn that the certificate was to protect the woman's dignity in society and give her the right and the ability to then remarry. That's why the man in Deuteronomy 24 is told that he can't go back and remarry, right? Because as he sends her away, she now has a certificate that she is free to remarry. And that certificate validates that if he comes back and says, no, that's my wife. I want to have her in marriage. She can show the certificate and say, no, I was sent away provision for the woman in Deuteronomy 24. Far from encouraging or allowing divorce, Deuteronomy 24 is attempting to mitigate the negative impacts that fall upon both parties, particularly the woman, and broader society at large. But God's word is no longer being used in that way. God's word is now being used not to protect the ill effects of divorce, but according to the Pharisees, it's being used as a justification to break God's clearly revealed will. Jesus responds, though, with a piercing remark. Again, with wisdom from above. Okay, Pharisees, you've taken me to the provision for divorce This is how God has regulated divorce, but did you know that it's only because of your hardness of heart, it's only because of your own sin that God permitted that? It's only because hardness, that God wrote this as a stipulation in his law, knowing that it was going to happen, knowing that you were going to drive a wedge in this union that should should not be separated. He doesn't argue about what indecency means, but instead he teaches the clear design for marriage. And he reminds them, I asked you what Moses commanded. Moses spoke about this elsewhere. And so he appeals to creation. There Moses commands a man to leave his father and his mother and to cleave to his wife. That's not just a description as to what happens in marriage, that the two become one. But it's a positive command that the man should cleave and hold on to and not send his wife away. Jesus is saying, what does Moses command you There, the two are one flesh. God has joined them, and they are inseparable. Like we learned in the seventh commandment a few weeks back, Jesus isn't just giving a Christian view of marriage. Jesus is giving a creation view of marriage, that this is good for all of society. It's good for the believer and the unbeliever. God calls a male and one male and one female, to be clear about that, into this marital bond that is good for the preservation of life and all of society, and it shouldn't be separated. Yet, the experts of the law are using it to live licentiously. They're using Deuteronomy 24, and they're disregarding Genesis 1 and 2. They're back in the house, and the disciples ask him more about this. They ask for clarification. And so Jesus, again, teaches them. This was God's original design for marriage. This was the intent. This was the purpose. To break the bond isn't how God has designed it. Breaking of the bond is only a result of your own sinfulness, of your own hard-heartedness. Now, in the introduction, we did note that there are grounds for lawful divorce. There are grounds. And it might be helpful at times to work those out, but Jesus is looking at his uh, the Pharisees in particular and saying, you're so concerned about the exceptions, you need to learn more about the rule. You need to learn more about the ordering of reality. This is what God has given, and this is what's good in the marital bond. I think the reason why Jesus doesn't include the exception here is because he is pressing into the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. He's exposing their hardness. He's exposing their poor use of God's clearly, clearly revealed will and his word. And herein lies the point of the passage that it was only because of Israel's hard-heartedness that God accommodated with these provisions of divorce. Due to sin, spouses are disposed to drive a wedge between one and another. They are predisposed by nature to hate God and their neighbor. And we see this most clearly, most heightened in the marital bond, living so closely with another And we see our own sin well up and driving a wedge between each other. And it's the result of divorce that demonstrates the heightened view of hard-heartedness. Or the heightened expression, let's say, of hard-heartedness. That's the teaching that Jesus gives on marriage. But in back of this, there's something way bigger at play. There's something on the scene of redemptive history that is much bigger than just Jesus speaking with the Pharisees. You see, it's because of your hardness of heart that God wrote this provision in his law with a certificate of divorce, but he's not just talking about the Pharisees' hardness of heart. He is referring to the hardness of heart of the entire nation of Israel. God called the nation, not according to any good in themselves, he calls them according to his good pleasure, and he As the faithful husband calls them into this marital bond. That's how the Old Testament scriptures speak about God and his people. And what does the wife do? What does Israel do? She walks in adultery. She abandons her God. And she runs after idolatrous relations. Foreign idols. Foreign gods. Yet God remains faithful. So what is Jesus doing as he set himself up as the chief prophet? He is revealing himself as the faithful Israelite. Your hardness of heart, O Israel. You've walked away from your God and here Jesus is as the faithful one to speak from the mouth that is pure. A heart that is not defiled. A heart that is clean. A mouth That only speaks the truth of God and one who will never abandon his bride. That's what's at play in this passage. Jesus revealing to the people what he is going to do, not just the problem of their hardness of heart, but what he is going to do about it. The pure heart, the no wickedness on his lips and never abandoning his bride was not true for anyone standing there. And it's not true for anyone sitting here either. Jesus stands in contrast to the entire human race. He stands in contrast to all of Israel, and he stands in contrast to you and to me. Standing in contrast, being made like his brothers in every respect, tempted in every way, yet without sin. Never did hard-heartedness flow from his heart. Never was he undefiled. Never was he filled with sin until he was made to be sin, who knew no sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And that leaves us our final point. That is a framed commitment. You see, his response drives the bigger picture. The framed commitment that Jesus is teaching on divorce is framing the divine commitment that God has for his people It's not coincidence that this is how God spoke about himself as the faithful father, as his bride, as the adulterous one who walked out. Now the Pharisees come and ask the question. Jesus wants to open up our eyes to see him as the faithful husband. Though his people ran after foreign gods and they were enticed by idolatry, what did the Lord do? He remained faithful. He ran after them and he pursued them and he called them to repentance time and time again. They ran after idols and they called upon him and he said, why don't you call upon your vain idols? And then he says, repent and come back to me. And he runs after them and pursues them. And yet they continue to break covenant. Eventually their faithlessness leads them to be exiled. He preserves them there. As a faithful husband. And it was the union between male and female. In the marital bond. That was to picture God's faithfulness to his bride. That's what marriage is supposed to picture. And that's why breaking the bonds. Reveals that it's not the way that God had set it up to be. God's people committed adultery. They abandoned him and they broke covenant. Yet in his mercy he is determined To save them. And he's determined to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham. He gave to the nations that he gave to the woman. That through her seed, all the nations will be saved. He's determined to do such. In other words, because of the great love with which he loved us. Despite the hardness of our hearts. He's speaking to the Pharisees. Despite the hardness of heart. The son leaves the glory of the father. And he takes upon himself our very own flesh. And he stands as the faithful Israelite. He stands in the place of the first Adam who failed. He stands in the place of the nation of Israel who broke covenant and they were adulterous. And he stands in the place of you and me. And he demonstrates himself to be faithful. That's refreshing. He demonstrates himself to be perfect. Where we can't be. Where Israel couldn't be. The Son of God in our own flesh comes to do the Father's will. What is the Father's will? That he would save all those who the Father gave him, and he will raise them up on the last day, not to lose a single one of them. You see, I think Jesus' point here is that the Mosaic Law, it legislated provisions for divorce. It legislated, here's what you do, When you find yourselves in a situation where sin has severed a relationship that should not be severed. Here's what you do. But the Mosaic law could not deal with the heart of the matter. What's the heart of the matter? Hardness of heart. The Mosaic law could not legislate new hearts. Couldn't do it. It could only expose their sin. It could only expose. They would not have known what coveting is unless the law came. How do we know this? Paul in Romans 8 tells us the law could not deal with the hardness of heart. Romans 8, 3, but God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, it wasn't the law that was bad, but it was weakened by the flesh because of sin. The law couldn't change the heart. God had to send forth his son to obey perfectly in our place. Weakened by the flesh, the law promised life, and it only brought death. And we see that death heightened with the Pharisees who have come and they've tried to test Jesus, and they've used the law to live licentiously before their God. Yet what Moses could not do, that is change the heart, Moses couldn't do that. Jesus Christ comes. In almighty power, in perfect obedience, and a willful desire to live under the law and to set his people free from him, we've received grace upon grace. That's how John speaks in his first chapter of his gospel. The law came through Moses, yet grace and truth through Jesus Christ. In John 7, what's more, Jesus asks, hasn't Moses given you the law? his follow-up question or statement, yet none of you keep it. You, in fact, can't keep it. The problem, hardness of heart, a problem that we all face, a problem that drives the bonds of our marriages to be hindered, right? The, The law, in fact, came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Romans 5 Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point of the passage? What's the bigger picture? Well, it's that Jesus comes and does What Adam couldn't do because of his sin. He comes to do what Israel couldn't do because of their hardness of heart. And he comes to do what you and I couldn't do because of our hardness of heart. And I hope you see that there are massive implications for how we now view marriage. Because if I'm saying that Jesus does what we couldn't do and he deals with the problem, that means he changes our hearts. That means he gives us new hearts. And what is that new heart able to now do? It's able to walk in obedience to our God so we can hear the command for marriage, to cleave to our wife, to not send her away, to walk in a marital union that God has called us to, and we're set free from sin in order to do that. To love and to cherish, not from a hard heart, but from a heart that's new, that is born again, that is refreshed by the love and the glory of God who has worked faith in our hearts That's the implication of the bigger picture, right? I gave you a picture of the history of redemption, and now it impacts you in your personal life of redemption. Christ for you, enabling you to walk according to the law. That's the beauty. The major implication now in Christ we're set free to love and to be patient and kind and forgiving and to seek reconciliation Created in us. So now, back to some of those comments that were recognized as things that are true about the devastation of divorce. If you've been harmed by the sin and the hard heartedness that causes divorce, be comforted by the blessed truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is your faithful husband that Jesus Christ will never leave his bride He is the one who comforts you he gives you security What if you're one who is an innocent bystander and you've been impacted and you are you find yourself in the wake of divorce and broken relationships all around you It's in Jesus Christ knowing that he has reconciled you to the Father that you can now find reconciliation you can find true healing Through him and him alone. And the third category was the one who, because of their own sin, caused the breach in the relationship. Did you hear that it was Jesus Christ who stands as the faithful husband? It's him who is faithful to his bride, and he now gives you sweet forgiveness even where you were faithless and sent your bride away. There is full forgiveness for you in him. To close with just a few comments, the breaking up of marriage is not how marriage was intended. It was not supposed to be broken, breached by our own sin, though, overcome by the perfect work and the person of Jesus Christ, who is the faithful husband on our behalf. The Lord God Almighty has purchased you By the blood of Christ that you now share in the marital bond. That that earthly marriage is only a picture of. Earthly marriages are hindered. They are strained. And they even break. But the heavenly marriage, it's unbreakable. That which these marriages point to, God for his bride is never breakable because Jesus Christ is perfect on our behalf and he atones for our sin that we might be united to him, never to be separated. That's the blessed hope of the heavenly marriage to which these marriages point to. We no longer have those hard hearts that drive us in unbelief, but we have new hearts in Christ. So we end with Revelation 19. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. That marriage language again. And his bride, that's us, by grace through faith. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What is that fine linen? It's his righteousness clothed upon us. That's the fine linen. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you eagerly waiting? You're clothed in fine linen in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.